This podcast is supported by Zoll LifeVest. Sudden cardiac death is a leading cause of mortality in low EF patients with heart failure or following a heart attack. Zoll is proud to partner with your care team to pursue better outcomes together. Visit LifeVestResults.com to learn more. Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hey, Cardio Nerds, Dan Ambender here. Welcome back to the Cardio Nerds Cardiac Critical Care Series, which is a multi-institutional collaboration made possible by contributions of fellow leads and expert faculty from several programs led by series co-chairs, Dr. Mark Belkin, Dr. Eunice Dugan, Dr. Karin Desai, and Dr. Yoav Karpachev. In this episode, we learn all about positive pressure ventilation in the CICU with Dr. Sam Brosca, Dr. Chris Barnett, and Dr. Burton Lee. So stay with us. Finally, this podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. CardioNerds is an independent, fellow-founded platform with the mission to democratize cardiovascular education. To continue creating free and unbiased quality content, we are proud to collaborate with all stakeholders, including trainees, experts, fellowship programs, professional societies, industry, and patient advocacy groups. Relevant disclosures can be found in the episode show notes and the curriculum and content is planned, produced, and reviewed solely by CardioNerds without external bias. And with that, let's get nerdy. Welcome back, Cardio Nerds, to the Cardiac Critical Care Series. This is Eunice Dugan, one of the co-chairs of the series, and I'm here with Drs. Amit Goyal and Karen Desai. It is another exciting day in the Shulman Wards, and I'm thrilled to be introducing today's episode on positive pressure ventilation in the cardiac ICU. To help lead this discussion, we have CardioNerd and fellow Osler alum, Dr. Sam Bruska. Sam completed his internal medicine residency at Johns Hopkins, then completed an NIH critical care fellowship, and is currently a UCSF cardiology fellow. Welcome to CCU Superstar, Sam. Thank you for that kind introduction. Really glad to be back on CardioNerds. I think the last time I was here was when we were discussing respiratory failure during the COVID pandemic, and not that much has changed, unfortunately. But I also have the pleasure today to bring a couple of experts that I've had the pleasure to work with. The first expert is Dr. Burton Lee. Really needs no introduction. He received his medical degree from Harvard Medical School and went on to complete his internal medicine residency and pulmonary critical care fellowship at Massachusetts General. He's currently the head of medical education and global critical care within the National Institutes of Health Critical Care Medicine Department, and I was actually fortunate to work with him quite closely during my time at the NIH. Throughout his career, Dr. Lee has been recognized as a master clinician educator and has led efforts to improve critical care delivery here in the U.S. and abroad in Sub-Saharan Africa. Recently, he produced amazing content as part of ATS Scholars Critical Care for Non-Intensive Program, and uh, we're pleased to have him here on the CardioNerds. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm super excited to be here. I love talking about mechanical ventilation, so I'm really looking forward to this opportunity. Also joining us today is Dr. Chris Barnett. Dr. Barnett received his medical degree and completed internal medicine residency at Northwestern. He went on to train in critical care medicine at the National Institutes of Health and then completed a cardiology fellowship at the University of California, San Diego. He's a world-renowned leader in the blossoming field of critical care cardiology, having published extensively as part of the ACC Critical Care Cardiology Council and as a member of the Critical Care Cardiology Trials Network Steering Committee. He was the director of the CICU at MedStar Washington Hospital Center prior to being recruited back to the West Coast, and he's currently the inaugural section chair of critical care cardiology within the Division of Cardiology at the University of California, San Francisco. And my balas. So such a pleasure to have you as well, Dr. Barnett. Great, Sam. Thanks so much for that great introduction. And I want to welcome you to our section of critical care cardiology at UCSF, where you're going to be an attending starting in July. And really excited to be here with Dr. Lee, who most of what I know about mechanical ventilation, I learned from Dr. Lee when I was a fellow many years ago. Yeah, that's right, Dr. Burnett. Thanks for officially announcing it. I will be uh, joining and pleased to be joining the section of critical care cardiology at UCSF starting in July. And I'm really proud and ready to help this program grow. So let's dive into today's episode by following two patients with distinct cardiovascular pathophysiology that require drastically different ventilator management strategies. After discussing various aspects of normal and abnormal cardiopulmonary physiology, we can then apply the learning points to each patient. We have a rock star panel today. I am so excited for this episode. I love this approach, Sam. Let's get started. 
Our first patient is Dexter Danny. He's a 35-year-old male with severe asthma and methamphetamine-associated severe pulmonary artery hypertension with resultant RV dysfunction. He's not doing so well. His blood pressure right now is 90 over 60 with a rapid, irregularly irregular heart rate in the 120s. He's dyspneic and tachypneic with clear accessory muscle use and an elevated JVP saturating 88% on 6 liters nasal cannula. Our second patient is Miss Sinister Cindy. She's a 75-year-old obese woman who's being admitted to the hospital for the third time in the last six months for acute decompensated heart failure due to non-ischemic cardiomyopathy. Her last echo a month ago had demonstrated a dilated LV with EF of 30%, severe functional mitral regurgitation from annular dilation. She is currently hypertensive with blood pressure of 160 over 100, similarly dyspneic, and similarly using accessory muscles, and she is satting 88% on 6 liters nasal cannula. Now, these two patients are currently using negative pressure or spontaneous breathing. Sam, can you help walk us through the physiology behind unassisted negative pressure breathing? Sure, would love to. So, at end expiration, pleural pressure is slightly negative. And when a spontaneous breath is initiated, there is a further decrease in pleural pressure which creates a pressure gradient for airflow into the lungs. During non-labored tidal ventilation, this negative deflection is mild and has minimal cardiovascular effects. However, if the patient is in distress, like our two patients, these negative pleural pressure swings can be robust and affect filling of cardiac chambers. For example, asthmatics can even demonstrate pulses paradoxus, which us cardiologists typically reserve for cardiac tamponade. I see. Okay, so that's what's happening inside the lungs. What's happening inside the heart during negative pressure breathing? I think we all generally appreciate that on the right side of the heart, negative pleural pressure gets transmitted to the intrathoracic great vessels, which creates a gradient between systemic venous pressure and the right atrium leading to increased venous return and preload. At the same time, the diaphragm contracts, increasing intra-abdominal pressure and systemic filling pressures, also increasing this gradient. Sam, can you describe the impact of negative pressure breathing on the right heart in more detail for us? Of course, and I think you summarized that really well, that, you know, normally we have this increased pressure gradient for flow into the right side of the heart, and that's why, you know, we're all taught in medical school about how respiration affects the various murmurs that we look for on exam. But we also have to remember that the negative pleural pressure is transmitted through the pericardium to the RV, which increases transverse wall pressure and theoretically RV afterload by Laplace's law which is pressure times the radius divided by thickness. However, this negative pressure is also transmitted to the intrathoracic pulmonary vasculature, and thus the delta pressure for flow from the RV to the PA and the PA circuit is unchanged. This concept can be a little tricky to understand, so imagine a crazy scenario where the pulmonary artery is outside of the chest. And let's say at rest, both the RV and the PA pressure are 20 millimeters of mercury. If negative 10 of pleural pressure is applied, the RV must overcome it to still meet the PA pressure of 20. So in this scenario, 20 minus minus 10 gives you a transmural pressure of 30. However, in reality, the PA pressure is also intrathoracic and experiences the same pleural swings, and the system is net unaffected. So the RV drops from 20 to negative 10, and the PA drops from 20 to negative 10, no harm, no foul. Now, do remember the PVR does increase due to increase in transpulmonary pressure and lung volume, and thus RV afterload does increase with spontaneous breathing. You know, Sam, that was a great breakdown of what's going on in the lungs and the heart and how they interact with each other. And I think that's basically the point of this episode is trying to figure out how we can put the physiology we learn from medical school, residency, and throughout of what's happening in the lungs and what's happening in the heart and put it together and to help treat patients. So can you kind of explain what the impact of negative pressure would be on the LV? Yeah, I think the LV is slightly easier to understand. As we discussed, the negative pleural pressure is transmitted to the LV and intrathoracic aorta. But like that crazy scenario we discussed with the pulmonary artery being outside the chest, the extrathoracic aorta is outside of the chest. And so the transmural pressure across the LV goes up like a vacuum preventing the LV from contracting inward. And at the same time, the extrathoracic aorta does not see that pressure drop. And so you actually end up with increased afterload with a decreased gradient for flow from the LV and intrathoracic aorta to the extrathoracic aorta. It seems like the moral of the story here is that negative 
spontaneous breathing is not a neutral endeavor, especially for patients with significant cardiac disease experiencing significant respiratory distress. Sam, can you take us back to our patients and explain this physiology in the context of their cases? Yeah, I think that is sort of the moral of the story. You know, importantly, if a patient is not in respiratory distress and they're very calm, then tidal breathing is essentially a net neutral process. Where this becomes an issue is like with our two patients where they're in extremis and where their negative pleural pressure swings could be drastic. So for Dexter Danny with his severe pH and RV failure, the increased lung volume and large transpulmonary pressure swings may be increasing his PVR significantly. Further, the increased preload may be pushing his RV off the starling curve and inducing pericardial constraint and interventricular dependence. Sinister Cindy, with her non-ischemic cardiomyopathy and severe LV dysfunction, is also detrimentally affected by the excessively negative pleural pressure swings, primarily from increased LV afterload. This is more straightforward than the patient with RV failure, with a relatively simple relationship between increasing negative pleural pressure and increasing LV afterload. Wow, Sam, that was phenomenal. What a masterclass in understanding cardiopulmonary physiology during negative pressure breathing. And the way you explained this so clearly and coherently sort of takes me back to our residency days. And I can only imagine how Dr. Lee and Dr. Barnett, whom you've worked with both during different parts of your training, must be just beaming with pride. But Dr. Lee and Dr. Barnett, do you have anything to add before we work through managing our patients and taking it a step further? Dr. Lee, we can start off with you. So thank you, Sam, for that excellent explanation. And over the many years that I've been teaching some concepts like this, I found that many learners have difficulty understanding the concept of transmural pressures and then and the effects of positive pressure ventilation, or in this case, spontaneous breathing on cardiac function. So an analogy that I often use at the bedside is actually to have a learner consider someone trying to jump from ground level over a hurdle. So the, uh, the analogy, of course, would be the height of the hurdle is similar to the afterload, and the strength of the heart is analogous to that person's leg muscles and their ability to jump over that hurdle. But the ground level where you're starting off is the idea of the impact of spontaneous or positive pressure ventilation on their starting pressures. So for example, you know, at my age, jumping over that hurdle might be a challenge, and it might be easier for somebody who's much younger and stronger. But if I have a starting point, like the ground where I'm jumping from over the hurdle, but at the same time, that ground is sinking as I'm trying to jump over, that makes it much harder for me to jump over because the distance that I have to jump over is much greater because the ground is sinking and the hurdle remains the same height. So that would be an example, as Sam had explained very well, about the left ventricular situation where the ground is sinking, hurdle stays the same, so that transmural pressure gradient is actually increasing. And in contrast, the right ventricle, it's both the hurdle and the ground is sinking at the same time. So relative from my muscle strength, it's not going to make a big difference. Yeah, Sam, thanks for that outstanding presentation. I think you really pulled that apart in a way that's really easy to understand and to think about. I think the only thing I'd like to add is the importance of really thinking about this all the time. I I feel like oftentimes we get distracted by aspects of hemodynamic management in these complicated and sick patients. And oftentimes we don't appreciate enough the importance of the interaction between the ventilator or the positive pressure ventilation and the cardiac pathologies. And this is really important at the time of intubation, oftentimes, or initiation of positive pressure ventilation, as well as the time of termination of positive pressure ventilation. These are really important teaching points, and it's really important to keep them at the front of our minds all the time. You know, Dr. Barnett, you just mentioned there that we have to keep the cardiovascular and cardiopulmonary physiology in mind at the time of intubation. So why don't we take it back to our cases to kind of go through that a little bit? So our first patient, Dexter Danny, he continues to desaturate despite an attempt to stabilize him with high-flow nasal cannula. So the decision is made to intubate. I know some of our audience may be thinking, no problem, let's get that slug of propofol ready. We are ready to rock and roll with intubation. But we frequently hear about the risk of intubation and positive pressure ventilation in patients with pulmonary arterial hypertension and RV failure. But it seems like the large portion of this risk comes from the induction and intubation itself. Dr. Barnett, can you describe why that may be the case and your approach to induction for these tenuous patients with RV failure? I mean, that's a really, really important point. And I think RV failure is one of the places I worry about this the most. And we have to think about this the most. I'll start off by saying there's a lot of types of RV failure. There's a lot of causes of RV failure. 
The most common one we see in the ICU, of course, being from left-sided heart failure. We particularly worry about this, about the effects of positive pressure ventilation and respiratory failure in patients with group 1 PAH or other types of pulmonary hypertension that cause severe end-stage RV failure. And anecdotally, I've had a number of these patients recently who were patients with were likely half path that led to severe end-stage RV failure. So this is an increasingly common problem on our intensive care units, I think. There's lots of elements of this that can be thought about, but I think the number one thing is trying to avoid intubation and positive pressure ventilation at all costs. Certainly, sometimes it can be done safely. However, there are a portion of these patients with severe RV failure who will die on intubation. If we think about the different elements of the physiology that can lead to this risk, there's a couple that come to mind. One is the physiology of the RV. So the right ventricle in patients who have chronic RV failure changes. So a healthy right ventricle is thin. The pressures inside of it are low. It pumps against a low afterload. And it has low myocardial oxygen demand. And it receives coronary blood flow throughout systole and diastole. In patients with RV failure, especially patients with chronic RV abnormalities, the muscle gets thick. The pressures inside the RV and the afterload become high. And the coronary perfusion changes so that coronary perfusion occurs primarily during diastole as it would in a healthy left ventricle. So you take a right ventricle, you increase its oxygen demand by thickening it, giving it more muscle. And you also increase demand by raising the afterload against which it's pumping. And then you reduce the coronary blood flow. So reducing blood supply. In patients like this, even small amounts of hypotension can reduce coronary blood flow further and can precipitate acute right ventricular failure. Oftentimes, this results in death. Similarly, as Sam eloquently pointed out earlier, when we add positive pressure ventilation, we increase RV afterload, and that can precipitate or worsening RV failure. So initiation of positive pressure ventilation or an intubation, both the induction, the anesthesia, and the positive pressure, all can result in precipitating acute RV failure. And oftentimes this can result in immediate death. And so we have to be very cautious about this. Some patients will tolerate it, of course, but we always worry. And we always want to be exquisitely well prepared for this. Think ahead so we can support our patient around this really complicated hemodynamic period. Yeah, thank you, Dr. Barnett. You know, I think the listeners would benefit potentially from a few of the sort of logistical pearls that you have in this situation, what your setup is, what kind of medications you prefer to administer during induction. Sure. I think that one of the most important keys is to avoid any episodes of hypoxemia and any episodes of hypotension. One of the, the most important aspects of this is very careful planning. Whether you're someone who does your own intubations or works with an anesthesiologist, this is really a time to have highly, highly skilled people available. We typically have all the hemodynamic support we might need ready prior to inducing for intubation. So have drugs like epinephrine hanging, norepinephrine hanging, vasopressin hanging. So all we have to do is turn them on and initiate the infusion. Make sure we have plenty of access to infuse these drugs. It's important to work with an anesthesiologist who's familiar with the risks of this. And we want to choose induction agents that don't precipitate hypotension. Uh, some anesthesiologists will advocate for drugs like ketamine because they don't cause hypotension. It may help increase the blood pressure. You want to minimize stimulation during intubation that could precipitate hemodynamic changes. There's a recent paper that I looked at that described an approach to intubation using ketamine and nasal intubation over a bronchoscope to avoid any hypotension and or another stimulus that could otherwise precipitate negative hemodynamic effects. I think the most important thing is really being prepared to have a careful, thoughtful approach to induction and intubation to minimize the hemodynamic effects, and then have all the vasopressors and hemodynamic support you might need ready to go and titrate them aggressively while this is happening, and then follow along closely after intubation. Also, choosing sedatives to help the patient tolerate the ventilator that have the minimal hemodynamic effects possible. Uh, amazing. Thank you, Dr. Barnett. And you know, with that, We'll transition to our second patient. And Sinister Cindy, if you remember, is our lady with non-ischemic cardiomyopathy and, and heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. She also remains tachypnic and dyspneic, but is saturating okay on supplemental 6 liters nasal cannula. An APG is obtained, which demonstrates a pH of 7.25, PO2 of 55, and a CO2 of 70. 
Prior to intubation, the decision is made to place her on bi-level, non-invasive positive pressure ventilation. Sometimes residents I work with are surprised when our heart failure patients have respiratory acidosis. However, pulmonary edema decreases lung compliance and patients can compensate by breathing faster at lower lung volumes. And in this scenario, the dead space ratio increases and causes hypoventilation. Add in the increased chest wall resistance in our obese elderly patient, and she is set up for respiratory acidosis. Dr. Lee, can you talk to us about the role of non-invasive positive pressure ventilation in patients with respiratory acidosis, potentially highlighting the specific evidence around cardiogenic pulmonary edema? Yes. Yeah, so I think, I think everybody knows that respiratory acidosis can actually have some significant hemodynamic effects, including myocardial depression and then vasodilation. And that can be destabilizing to a person who already has cardiac dysfunction. And so therefore, IPAP by increasing ventilation or CPAP by increasing intrathoracic pressure and helping with oxygenation can mitigate those effects. I think probably one of the classic studies that I usually point my learners to is a study by Bradley in ARRD, where they put patients with HEFREF, average ejection fraction of about 20%, I believe, and they put them just on CPAP of five, and they measure the effects on their cardiac output, pulmonary capillary wedge pressure, and systemic vascular resistance. And the bottom line is that these are in non-intubated patients, but who are having decompensated heart failure. Uh, CPAP of five centimeters of water significantly increase the cardiac output, decrease the pulmonary capillary wedge pressure, and also reduce the systemic vascular resistance. So in some ways, they actually behave similar to many of the cardioactive medications that we might give to patients like this. So for example, a diuretic or some other agent like that is what we might employ to decrease preload, which is again what BiPAP or CPAP would do due to its effect of a positive pressure on venous return. And then if that's not enough, we might employ something like uh, dobutamine or some other inotropic agents. And in fact, in this study, the cardiac output increased from 4.8 to 5.4 liters per minute. And so again, positive pressure can have a similar effect as an inotropic agent. And then similarly, if things got even worse, you might consider a vasodilator of some type, maybe nitroprusside or something like that. And again, here, the systemic vascular resistance dropped from about 1,700 to about 1,400. And so what I often point out is that positive pressure can actually have a similar effect as having three simultaneous vasoactive medications, maybe a combination of Lasix drip, nitrite drip, and a dobutamine drip. What's important here is the physiologic changes that occur with non-invasive ventilation is, I think, well appreciated. And then there is some evidence in terms of clinical outcomes. And these are like various randomized trials that have compared either CPAP or BiPAP on outcomes of patients with acute decompensated heart failure. The largest of these trials is a study by Gray, over a thousand patients in the New England Journal of Medicine back in 2008, where they were randomized to either CPAP or BiPAP versus just regular oxygen. And in this study, they didn't actually find any significant benefit in terms of mortality or the need for intubation within seven days. So they could not demonstrate actually any useful clinical outcomes. Nevertheless, a systematic review of all the trials suggests that there might be benefit, although some people push back saying there might be some publication bias and other limitations to that meta-analysis. But nevertheless, I think there is a wide consensus that there is benefit of non-invasive ventilation for pulmonary edema. Dr. Lee, that's such a wealth of information. I never thought about positive pressure ventilation that way, but I'm starting to really see how it affects the physiology like you explained. Earlier, we talked about the important considerations for intubation in patients. Now, I know there's data concerning worse outcomes in patients with ARDS and delayed intubation. Is there anything similar in the CICU patients? So I'm personally not aware of a study specifically in cardiac patients, but I think there's ample evidence from other patients in general, and that some of these patient population included people with heart failure. So I think there's multiple studies that are observational. Some are actually like propensity matched patients while they're on high-flow nasal cannula and see what happens to those who are intubated earlier versus later. Usual cutoff is around 48 hours. And they typically show a lower risk of death if you were intubated earlier. And then similarly, this is an older study from 2004 by Esteban, uh, where they had a randomized controlled trial of patients in respiratory distress post-extubation. And then they were using non-invasive ventilation to rescue them to prevent re-intubation. 
And similarly, in that randomized trial, those who are given non-invasive ventilation were intubated 12 hours from failure as opposed to two and a half hours from failure in the control group without non-invasive ventilation. But those who got the delay in intubation was associated with higher mortality. So I think there is multiple lines of evidence saying that if a patient is truly in distress, it might be okay to use things like non-invasive ventilation or high-flow nasal cannula but you probably don't want to delay it beyond a certain point of safety. Yeah, I think this is an area that's probably ripe for investigation. I think thinking about it, since we have an absence of data in this specific population, I would think about it a little bit in context of, is there a reversible cause of respiratory failure? I think that physiologically, if there's a rapidly reversible cause of respiratory failure and how, as Dr. Lee taught us about a short time ago, positive pressure can be used to help reverse that cause of respiratory failure, such as heart failure. If we can add diuretics, reduce the afterload, add inotropes, then I think it's likely that those things are going to be beneficial. I would hypothesize that if there's an irreversible cause of respiratory failure identified, that it's in those patients in whom temporizing and delaying an intubation would be potentially harmful. But I think this is a a great question for uh, study. And I think, you know, another way to think about it is in cardiology, we think about all of these previously studied physiologies that improve with rapidity. Acute myocardial infarction, time is muscle. And we know that with cardiogenic shock, that instituting mechanical circulatory support and offloading devices earlier is likely better. And so I think, as Dr. Barnett said, You know, if somebody is in shock and they are very sick, it's not a rapidly reversible process, then instituting positive pressure ventilation as you would instituting those other support modalities is just as important. Great. Thanks for that, Sam, Dr. Lee, Dr. Barnett. This has been just such an incredible discussion of some of the cardiopulmonary interactions during ventilation and the hemodynamic effects of positive pressure breathing. And I love the notion of thinking of positive pressure analogous to an inotrope, especially for the left side. But as we get deep into the weeds of positive pressure breathing and the interactions with the cardiopulmonary system, let's also get a little bit deep into the weeds of positive pressure, at least from the basics. Sam, can we talk a little bit about some of the various positive pressure ventilation devices and how we can use them to achieve our goals of maintaining appropriate oxygenation, ventilation, and also hemodynamics? Of course. And I love how you said, how do we achieve our goals? Because anytime we're starting oxygen therapy, positive pressure therapy, or intubating a patient, we need to be thinking about why we're doing it and how we're going to achieve what we want to achieve for that individual patient. So we can start with high-flow nasal cannula. Many of us don't think of high-flow nasal cannula as a positive pressure device, but it does produce uh, approximately three to five centimeters of PEEP. And I think the important lesson here is that the PEEP is coming from higher flows. So if you have a patient on the high-flow nasal cannula device, but they're only on 10 liters, then they're likely not getting much positive pressure. But if you have the flow ramped up to 40 liters per minute, then they might be achieving some positive pressure and including some alveoli. The high flows are also the mechanism via which we can finally titrate inspired oxygen by matching the patient's respiratory demand and limiting mixing with ambient room air. So if oxygen mixers are available in the ICU, I would typically ramp up flows first and then wean the FiO2 as possible, and then down titrate the flow once the oxygenation improves. Though it's not classically a, a heart failure intervention, I'd consider high-flow nasal cannula in your patients that are hypoxic but not very ill-appearing. It's much more comfortable. Patients are able to eat and drink. And so, as Dr. Barnett alluded to, this is an area that probably is ripe for some additional research because I do think there is a subset of patients that would benefit from this modality in the CICU. Using that as a a jumping point, for patients in respiratory distress with decomposited heart failure, Dr. Burnett, how would you choose between CPAP and BiPAP? You know, I think the first thing we do is to consider the data. And I think, as Dr. Lee pointed out earlier, we don't have really clear data that shows a benefit of one non-invasive mode over another. The next thing I tend to do is just start thinking about the physiology. And we've talked about this quite a bit about how non-invasive positive pressure ventilation affects heart failure physiology. And I think we can use that in our general understanding of these modalities to help inform our choices. I want to say also that I think it's super important, no matter what choice we make, that we need to be constantly reevaluating the consequences and weighing the risks and benefits of that choice in order to make the next choice. These patients are very active and dynamic. They're not crockpots. You can't set it and forget it. You got to kind of keep watching them closely. So I think the oftentimes we think about CPAP as being primarily to increase oxygenation. And I think that's true in this case. If we have a patient who's primarily hypoxemic, uh, CPAP is probably a good place to start. 
And all these modes increase the mean airway pressure. They all should have the favorable hemodynamic effects that have been described so far. When we switch from CPAP to BiPAP, we're potentially, and that certainly I would do that if a patient seemed to be having trouble with respiratory failure or CO2 retention. Also, though, it's going to give us a higher mean airway pressure, which to an extent, it augments the beneficial hemodynamic effects. It'll also increase that delta that Sam talked about earlier and potentially improve the offloading or reduction in afterload. I think it's really important, as we said, though, to consider the underlying cause of the respiratory failure. If the patient's in heart failure, inotropes, diuretics, other mechanical support, all of these have to be done at the same time. It's difficult to use BiPAP or CPAP for a long period of time. We want to treat the underlying problem so the respiratory failure improves. It's also important to constantly weigh the risks and benefits of the non-invasive positive pressure ventilation. When a, a BiPAP or CPAP mask is on, the patients can't eat. They're at risk for skin breakdown. They're at risk for gastric insufflation. We know that those modalities are contraindicated in patients who can't protect their airway, which can happen for a variety of reasons. If they were to vomit, that can be extremely dangerous and increase the risk of aspiration or even without vomiting, we worry about aspiration. So it's really important to constantly reassess the benefits and the risks. And if we get to a point where the patient's not getting better, we can't turn this around. Endotracheal intubation certainly may be necessary and appropriate. Thank you, Dr. Uh, Barnett. That's a very helpful way to think about how we select the positive pressure ventilation strategy, but also when it should be avoided and when we need to think about transitioning uh, away from uh, non-invasive positive pressure ventilation. Now that we've discussed positive pressure ventilation non-invasively, it's time to move on to invasive mechanical ventilation, invasive positive pressure. But before we talk about modes and some of the practical troubleshooting of the ventilator at the bedside, I think it's important to review a few equations. And for our audience, I know that you're thinking, uh-oh, math and physics, but stay with us because these equations are very important. The first equation is the equation of motion. Whenever we make a ventilator setting change, we are thinking about what impact that change will have on this equation. And it provides a good understanding of how we achieve the airway pressure that's displayed on the ventilator. The equation of motion tells us how much pressure is needed to deliver a tidal volume. It's the sum of the elastic pressure which is the pressure to inflate the lungs and chest wall, as well as the resistive pressure, which is the pressure to make airflow through the airways. Also included is the PEEP, or the pressure at which we're starting the breath, as well as the P-MUSK, or the pressure that is generally negatively applied by the patient's own diaphragm if they're spontaneously breathing. All right, cardioners, things are about to get a little heavy and a lot of nerdy. So if you have to, and believe me, I certainly will have to, go ahead and pause, rewind, and re-listen to the upcoming segments on repeat, and definitely check out the associated notes on the website to fully wrap your minds around these core concepts. So Sam, if I understand you correctly, the equation of motion just describes the pressure it will take to get a given amount of volume through all the tubes, airways included, and into all those alveoli. Now, I'm thinking back to blowing up balloons with my son Dhruv and think there might be an apt analogy there. How hard we'd need to work to blow up a balloon i.e. the pressure we need to generate, depends on both the neck of the balloon, kind of like the resistance of airways, and the stiffness of the balloon itself, kind of like the compliance of all the alveoli combined or the lungs in total. So, for example, if a balloon has a narrow neck, it's got more resistance, and therefore you need to generate more pressure to get the volume through. And also, unlike an old and boggy balloon, a brand new and stiff balloon would have less compliance, and hence, more pressure is needed to inflate open the balloon. All right, fine. I know what you're all thinking. We're definitely dealing with more complex systems when we're talking about real patients being ventilated. So Dr. Lee, how far off base am I with this analogy? And can you explain the components of this equation and why this is so fundamental to our understanding of ventilation? Well, thank you again for that. I, I, I agree with what you just said. And I think, in fact, that's exactly how I often think about it and how I would explain it to my learners. So I actually start with exactly as you've done with the analogy of opening up a balloon. But I first start with just maybe not the neck of the balloon, but more of a straw that's attached to the balloon. So if you match the straw, then I start with a very fundamental equation that I think most people will remember, and that's called Ohm's Law. And most people remember Ohm's Law from their physics classes back in high school or college, which says V is equal to IR. In that situation, V is voltage or voltage difference. I is current, which is flow of electrons, and then resistance. So V equals IR. For our situation where we're talking about air movement across a tube, then instead of a voltage difference, it's a pressure difference that's causing flow of air. 
So it's delta P is equal to flow times resistance. It's the same equation, but just modified for air molecules instead of electrons. So now if you attach a balloon to that, then air is going to move from high pressure to low pressure. So we think about during inspiration, the airway pressure on the ventilator, and then we think about the alveolar pressure in patients' lungs. So the difference between the two pressures, that is the ventilator pressure and the lung pressure, that's what is going to create delta P, and then flow is going to occur through that system. Then the last part that I emphasize is now think about the pressure in the lungs or the alveolar pressure. And you can easily kind of intuitively think about that by trying to squeeze that imaginary balloon and figuring out what would increase or decrease the pressure in that balloon. One obvious component is more volume. So the bigger the volume in the balloon, more pressure that that balloon would exert, but also the stiffness or the compliance of that balloon would also be relevant for pressure. So for example, if the balloon was very, very stiff, like a car tire, then there would be tremendous pressure inside that balloon, as opposed to if it was very, very compliant, like a grocery store plastic bag, then it wouldn't exert much recoil pressure. So the compliance would be very, very high and not very stiff. So it's actually volume over compliance that defines the pressure in the balloon. And then you have to add in the starting pressure of that balloon, which is PEEP. So having said all of that, that's the equation that Sam described earlier, which is the pressure of the airway or the pressure in the ventilator is equal to flow times resistance, which is the component that is needed to overcome the resistive part of the respiratory system. And then volume over compliance plus PEEP, which is the pressure in the alveolus. So the equation of motion is actually derived from Ohm's law. And all of these individual components have high relevance to troubleshooting and understanding your patient's physiology on mechanical ventilation. Thank you for that, Dr. Lee. It's bringing back memories of our summer boot camp and the winter session when we all discussed mechanical ventilation as part of the critical care consortium there in D.C. The other equation that I feel like, you know, we discussed a lot and potentially gets a little less recognition, but is very important, is that for the tau or the time constant of the respiratory system. And that's actually resistance times compliance. And we won't delve too much into this, but basically tau will determine how long it takes for the lung to empty. And if the airway resistance or lung compliance increases, it takes longer for the lung to empty. And we keep this in mind when we're considering auto-PEEP, and that's when a patient doesn't fully exhale between breaths, leading to the accumulation of intrinsic PEEP, and that can have uh, harmful effects on hemodynamics if unrecognized and causing too much of an effect on venous return. Thank you, Sam, for that addition to the background. Now let's keep those equations in mind and those concepts in mind while we describe the goals of mechanical ventilation. As we continue our discussion, we will be describing adjusting a ventilator in the assist control volume control mode, which is the most common mode of ventilation across the U.S. We will touch on other modes later as well. To start, Dr. Lee, what are our oxygenation goals with mechanical ventilation? Yes, I think to think about our oxygenation goals, it's probably helpful to first think about what buttons on the ventilator help determine your oxygenation. So the two buttons that have the greatest impact on the PO2 or the oxygen saturation is the FiO2 as well as the PEEP. So if we keep that principle in mind, that the FiO2 and PEEP are the principal determinants of oxygen, then that helps us figure out what our goals should be. So the goal number one is to achieve an acceptable PaO2 or oxygen saturation. But the second goal is that we want to achieve that acceptable PaO2 at the lowest level of FiO2 possible. And that's because there is the concern that high levels of FiO2 may lead to oxygen toxicity to the lungs. So generally, there's no universal agreement, but we try to shoot for an FiO2 of approximately 60% or lower if possible. The other button, as we said, that determines oxygenation is PEEP. So again, we want to achieve an acceptable PaO2 without using excess of PEEP. And that's because one of the side effects of PEEP is that it can increase intrathoracic pressures, decrease venous return, and then thereby decrease cardiac output and even blood pressure. So the third goal then is to set the PEEP to get appropriate PaO2 while avoiding hemodynamic compromise. Yeah, thanks, Dr. Lee, for setting our oxygenation goals. And what we commonly, or not necessarily commonly, but what does happen often enough is we can overshoot those goals and specifically hyperoxygenate patients. And Dr. Barnett, why is that not a good thing? 
you know, specifically with patients with myocardial infarction or post arrest? Yeah, yeah, John. I, I think that's a that's a really important question. I think it's really important to bounce to, as Dr. Lee said, to get this kind of just right. Hypoxemia, we worry about having negative effects such as pulmonary vasoconstriction, which can worsen right heart failure. Hyperoxia is discussed a lot less, but there's a growing body of literature suggesting adverse outcomes from hyperoxia. The mechanisms are probably related to free radical production and injury from free radicals. There's some data specific to cardiac arrest patients as well as acute MI patients suggesting that hyperoxia has important effects on clinical endpoints. This is a space that's still under investigation, but I think it's prudent at this point to avoid hyperoxia. Historically, there's data from 1970s with mechanically ventilated brain-dead patients who are undergoing evaluation for organ donation, where they actually increased their oxygen to 100%, and others, they were kept at 21%. And in that data set, the higher oxygen in terms of FiO2 exposure was associated with more shunt formation in their lungs, increase in dead space, as well as decrease in compliance. So all those physiologic changes together suggest that, you know, that oxygen seems to be injurious to the lungs. And then as many of the listeners know, there were some trials that came out, a trial in 2016 called the Oxygen ICU trial, which was a single center study in Italy that seemed to confirm that kind of data where the risk of actually death in that population was significantly higher if you were on higher FiO2 exposure with a greater saturation target. So the comparison was 94 to 98% saturation versus a higher target of 97 to 100%. And then those with the lower oxygen saturation target actually had a lower mortality rate. Unfortunately, there have been three subsequent studies that have been done. It includes stuff like the ICU ROCKS trial, the HOT ICU trial, the LOCO2 trial, and all of these are in the New England Journal of Medicine. And none of those three larger studies have actually confirmed a particular FiO2 level or an oxygen saturation target that resulted in any difference in mortality. So I think it's comfortable to say that there are physiologic evidence that high levels of oxygen exposure is probably harmful but as to exactly what level and at what duration and how to minimize that is still not known. Thanks, Dr. Lee, for that. This remains an area of really active research. And in fact, there's an ongoing trial, the exact trial, which is being carried out in patients with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. And that trial seeks to further elucidate the question of the potential harms and benefits of oxygen therapy and patients after cardiac arrest. The data from that trial should be available within the next couple of years. Thank you, Dr. Barnett. That was a great discussion on the goals for oxygenation, but also the limits for oxygenation. Let's turn to some other goals that we think about when we're ventilating patients. Specifically, Dr. Lee, what are the basic goals of ventilation itself and what are the acceptable or target PaCO2 and pH? Sam previously brought this concept up of plateau pressure. Can you explain about how that relates to our ventilatory goals? Yes. So the goals of ventilation can be thought of in an analogous way as goals of oxygenation. That is, once again, to back off and ask what buttons on the ventilator primarily control the PCO2 this time. And the answer to that, of course, is the tidal volume and the respiratory rate. So even though tidal volume and respiratory rates are manipulated to achieve a good PCO2, we have to recognize that both of those buttons are also associated with potential side effect. And this concept, of course, is analogous to the FiO2 and PEEP having side effects. So the major side effect of excess tidal volume is that it can over-distend the lung and then cause uh, barotrauma or value trauma. And the major side effect of too fast of a respiratory rate is that it can actually cause excessive air trapping because you don't allow enough time for a patient to fully exhale. So that can result in auto-peep, which in turn leads to over-distension and also hemodynamic compromise, very similar to what excessive peep might do. So then the bottom line is if you put all those thoughts together, and the goals of ventilation then is to achieve an acceptable PCO2 while minimizing the effects of value trauma. And the current method to do that is to follow plateau pressures and then try to keep that plateau pressure under 30 and then to watch the respiratory rate so that you minimize any development of auto peep. A slightly further thought into that is that some people now are looking at not just a plateau pressure of 30, 
but more advanced measures of that. And so one of those is the driving pressure, which is the plateau pressure minus the total peep in the system or the delta P that is causing distension of the alveoli from end of expiration to end of inspiration. And then people try to minimize that driving pressure to less than 15 centimeters of water to minimize the risk of lung injury. And yet another component of that is to minimize the concept of power, which is for a given tidal volume and plateau pressure, how many times per minute are you ventilating the patient? So the analogy might be if you are injuring yourself, you know, then at a rate of 30 times a minute versus 10 times a minute, maybe 30 times a minute might be worse. So that's the concept of power. So in addition to acceptable plateau pressures and minimizing auto peep, some people are not considering the idea of minimizing driving pressures as well as minimizing power. Great. Thank you so much for that, Dr. Lee. You know, having established our goals of oxygenation, how we achieve them, our goals of ventilation and how we achieve those. And by that, it's primarily trying to avoid harm, it seems. I want to pivot to which modes of mechanical ventilation we're using. Dr. Burnett, you know, we've been talking primarily about assist control, volume control, ACBC, but I know that at various institutions, people use things like pressure support or pressure control. Do you have any thoughts on which mode is preferable or is there any reason to think that one mode is better than the others? Yeah, Sam, I think that there's not really a lot of data to guide us in this space. There's certainly no data to show superiority or benefit of other modes over typically used ventilate volume and pressure control modes. I think one of the most important aspects of choosing ventilator modes is understanding the risks and benefits of each mode and understanding how to adjust the ventilator correctly to achieve the goals of oxygenation and ventilation that Dr. Lee described in the last couple of minutes. One key factor is in understanding the risks of each mode and having providers and other staff members, such as respiratory therapists, who are knowledgeable and facile in the modes. Ventilator settings can cause harm if used incorrectly, and it's important that all members of the treatment team have the requisite and relevant knowledge and experience with any ventilator mode that's being chosen to ensure that the patients can be safely managed. Yeah. So if I could add an example to what Dr. Burnett has just said, I think in some institutions, for example, they prefer to use volume control while other institutions prefer pressure control. I think what we all agree on is that for, especially for ARDS patients, we should limit the tidal volume to six mLs per kilogram of their ideal body weight. So on the surface, some people who advocate for volume control says, well, since we're trying to limit the volume to six mLs, why not just use volume control because we're literally controlling the volume? And so on the surface then, pressure control, if you try to set a pressure and the patient wakes up and they start to take deeper breaths on their own, that's the P must that Sam Bresca was mentioning earlier, then that additional effort will create more tidal volume than you had intended with the original pressure setting. So since larger tidal volumes may be associated with greater lung injury and higher risk of death, that may seem less preferable. And that is absolutely true. On pressure control, you have to watch for the effects of patient spontaneous effort. However, on volume control, if that same patient is awake and they start to want a bigger breath, even though they will not create additional flow as it would happen on pressure control, when that person starts to suck in so the diaphragm is moving down, they can actually create or trigger another breath. It's often called double triggering. Basically, the first breath is delivered, but before the patient exhales, the second breath would follow without any exhalation. And so in effect, patient is now getting two breaths without exhalation in between, which means if you had intended six mLs, you would actually get 12 mLs. And so that could also be even more injurious than somebody who's on pressure control. So the way I personally think about this is whether you're using volume control or pressure control probably doesn't matter too much, but what you need to do is understand what the advantages of those breath types are, but also appreciate the potential downside. And then you need to very carefully watch the patient either way, and you need to understand how each breath works in both cases. And final little uh, following on that, Dr. Lee, which, you know, is a great discussion of the pros and cons of the different modes. Since we have such an audience here on CardiNerds, I want to take this point to definitively point out that you can have a plateau pressure greater than your set pressure on pressure control. If a patient has any spontaneous respiration, they can pull a tidal volume that's higher than one would achieve with just their compliance alone, and thus their plateau pressure can be higher than the set pressure on pressure control. So that's something you often hear which is fake news. That's a great point, Sam. 
That's great. Thank you, everyone. A lot of great points made there. We discussed a little bit about our goals for the ventilator, how to adjust the ventilator to achieve our goals, and some things to watch out for during the use. Now let's check back in with our patients and see how they're doing. So our patient, Mr. Dexter Danny, this was our patient with asthma, PAH, and RV failure. He was intubated with rapid sequence intubation using Atomidate. Norepinephrine was running prior to induction to avoid procedural hypotension. He's placed on assist control, volume control ventilation with settings of 6 cc's per kilogram, respiratory rate of 20, PEEP of 5, FiO2 of 60%. The following day, Dexter develops worsening RV failure as well as persistent PaO2 in the 50s. FiO2 is increased to 80%. Inhaled nitric oxide at 20 parts per million is added to the ventilator circuit. Sam, can you unpack for us what happened here with positive pressure ventilation? Definitely. So the right ventricle is quite sensitive to positive pressure. As we previously described, the right ventricle and the pulmonary circulation are both intrathoracic. So increasing pleural pressure and decreasing transmural pressure does not drop RV afterload. Again, the change is uniform across the whole circuit, and there is no net pressure gradient. Instead, in this circumstance, increased transpulmonary pressure and increased lung volumes can increase pulmonary vascular resistance and can actually lead to increased RV afterload. In summary, the RV is most happy with normal, calm, tidal breathing increasing transpulmonary pressure with either strongly negative spontaneous breathing or with positive pressure and increasing lung volume will both increase RV afterload. We aim to limit the detrimental effects of positive pressure by limiting tidal volume and PEEP. Some degree of PEEP is likely still net beneficial, however, as alveolar derecruitment can also elevate PVR via loss of traction on extra alveolar vessels and also via potentially limiting RV preload. Dr. Lee, Dr. Barnett, is there anything else you'd like to add about the hemodynamics of positive pressure in RV failure? Yeah, Sam, I think you got all the key points here. I think it's important too, we describe a patient with asthma. So I would include, in addition to the hemodynamic effects on the right ventricle, I would worry about ventilator mechanics and the potential possibility the patient would have air trapping or other negative effects from positive pressure or from invasive mechanical ventilation. I do want to point out also that what we're describing is a patient who's worsening rapidly. And I would worry very much about the patient survival at this point. I think that this is also a very good time to address strategies. If other mechanical support strategies possibly could be offered at a patient like this and what those might be, since the invasive positive pressure ventilation seems to be resulting in worsening RV failure. In this sort of patient, Dr. Barnett, is there a mechanical support modality that you think would be most appropriate? primary RV failure with high RV afterload? Yeah, I think this is the kind of patient where a discussion of mechanical support with a modality like ECMO becomes important. And it's important to think about this quickly at this time when the patient is worsening because if the patient gets much worse, they may arrest and we may not be able to resuscitate them. Decisions like this are always difficult and we want to take into account the ability for this patient to have recovery if there's a pH therapy or a reversal of RV failure or an attempt, a possibility of reversing RV failure with drug or a procedure that we haven't yet been able to offer. I think it's important whenever we put a patient like this on positive pressure, as we discussed earlier, to be prepared for the complications and also to think the next step ahead since positive pressure, uh, especially invasive mechanical ventilation in these patients, oftentimes is so detrimental to their hemodynamics, which you're describing in this case. So just to add uh, one other physiologic point, I think it's important to remember that the pulmonary vascular resistance is actually a U-shaped curve. And that's because there are two sets of vessels within the chest. One are the intra-alveolar vessels, and then there are also extra-alveolar vessels. And the difference is, as the lung volume increases, the intra-alveolar vessels actually get compressed. So the resistance increases with lung volume. On the other hand, extra alveolar vessels actually get pulled more taut so that there's actually an increase in diameter as the lung volume increases. So the combination of the two causes a initial decrease in resistance, but then subsequently a rise in resistance, hence the U-shape. And that optimal point of lowest pulmonary vascular resistance is thought to occur actually at your functional residual capacity for a normal person. So we're actually typically in an ideal pulmonary vascular resistance when our diaphragms are at rest. So that also emphasizes as you increase the peak, for example, on a mechanically ventilated patient, you may start to increase the pulmonary vascular resistance. However, if there's a lot of atelectasis, insufficient PEEP may also cause 
higher resistance so that some peat may lower it down to the nadir of the U-shaped curve. That was some really important considerations of positive pressure ventilation for our patient here. Now let's contrast this with our other patient, Miss Sinister Cindy. A reminder that she's our elderly patient with HEFREF. Now she initially does well with BiPAP, but eventually also requires intubation after tiring out. She's placed on assist control volume control ventilation, set at 6 cc's per kilogram, respiratory rate of 22, PEEP of 8, and FiO2 of 70%. She is double triggering regularly, and so her tidal volume is increased from 6 to 8 cc's per kilogram. She also requires vent titration for worsening oxygenation. Her PEEP is increased from 8 to 12 and eventually to 14, with resultant resolution of hypoxia. One more time, Sam, can you break down what happened here? Thanks. Be glad to. So the left ventricle is also quite sensitive to positive pressure. However, as we previously described, as the extrathoracic aorta is extrathoracic, the decreased transmural pressure across the LV leads to a net drop in afterload. The decreased preload with PEEP is also often beneficial. I will say in both RV and LV failure, we make a prediction as to the optimal ventilatory strategy. However, I think it's important to realize that things change rapidly in the ICU and sometimes our predictions are wrong. In biventricular failure, for example, it's hard to know sometimes what the predominant effect of positive pressure ventilation will be. By following measures of perfusion, cardiac output with either echo or pulmonary arterial catheterization, we can also adjust ventilatory settings to optimize cardiac output. So in this case, our patient, Sinister Cindy, required increased tidal volume, increased PEEP in order to increase her mean airway pressure, which increases oxygenation. And we're hoping that because she has a heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, that she'll tolerate these increased pressures. But sometimes it's hard to know, and it's possible that at some point, the increased PEEP will become detrimental. Doctors Lee and Barnett, do you have anything to add to what Sam specifically discussed here, specifically regarding the cardiopulmonary interactions during mechanical ventilation and how that may impact our considerations for liberating the patient from the vent? For instance, if positive pressure offloads the LV, wouldn't a patient with a very dilated and weakened LV potentially decompensate when we transition them from positive pressure ventilation to unassisted negative pressure ventilation or spontaneous breathing? Yes, that's a great point. And, and in fact, everything I said, I think, earlier about the benefits of positive pressure ventilation could be theoretically lost when you're thinking about liberating the patient who was enjoying those benefits. So if you recall, we mentioned that positive pressure ventilation can have similar effects as a Lasix drip, Nipride drip, and a dibutamine drip to help with preload, afterload, and contractility simultaneously. So if somebody is benefiting from those and you now liberate them, that is you extubate them, then it could be you know, analogous to stopping all three of those drips simultaneously rather than slowly winning that off. So there's a theoretical risk that patient may decompensate even if they were doing well on positive pressure ventilation. So some people consider strategies to offset those negative effects. One is some people like to try patients on the T-piece trial prior to extubation, as opposed to, let's say, a CPAP trial or a pressure support trial. So there isn't necessarily great evidence to say that that's absolutely the way to go, but it makes physiologic sense. And so some people try T-piece because obviously with T-piece you get oxygen, but you don't get any positive pressure. And so if the patient decompensates on T-piece, then it suggests that maybe liberating them from mechanical ventilation may be premature, and then you might need to treat them further with diuretics and other medications. Similarly, another strategy that people consider is to extubating patients like that to BiPAP, again, from invasive positive pressure to non-invasive positive pressure so that you can preserve some of those beneficial effects of positive pressure ventilation. And again, there isn't great literature, but there's some literature that for high-risk patients that may be beneficial as well. Yeah, I think that the one thing that's really important to do in these patients when we're thinking about liberating them from invasive mechanical ventilation is to really think carefully and go back to the principles we learned earlier about the hemodynamic effects and the gas exchange effects of mechanical ventilation. We certainly also want to avoid hypoxemia and hypercapnia in these patients. And I think thinking about the hemodynamic effects that the ventilator, the hemodynamic support the ventilator is providing and providing that support in another way, like Dr. Lee mentioned, it's somewhat like giving a patient or reducing their preload with diuretics, reducing their afterload with a drug like nipride or an equivalent drug and providing an inotrope. If we think the patient may require an inotrope, oftentimes I increase the inotropes prior to extubation, understanding we're going to lose some of the inotropic effects. 
I'll give a slug of diuretics prior to extubation or at the time of extubation and have drugs like nitroprusside or nitroglycerin, other afterload reducing drugs available to avoid the effects of afterload increase. Oftentimes, it's also important when we're thinking about weaning mechanical ventilation, oftentimes we remove sedation, other medications that also reduce preload and afterload. Patients during weaning trials can become hypertensive and can develop pulmonary edema and acute respiratory failure even on the ventilator before removing the ventilator, not only in reduced ejection fraction heart failure, but other pathophysiology such as preserved ejection fraction heart failure, the hypertension that occurs from the time when sedation is weaned off to until the time when the endotracheal tube is removed can oftentimes be detrimental. And it's not uncommon that we hear stories of patients failing weaning trials, ventilator weaning trials. And when we look back carefully, we can find that the hemodynamic shifts that occurred during those weaning trials were likely to result. So I think always carefully considering the hemodynamic effects of withdrawing the ventilator prior to attempting to doing so is important. I think it's also important to plan for, as Dr. Lee mentioned, plan for the post-extubation period. Anecdotally, based on my own experience, I typically advocate for close monitoring for about six hours after extubation. And I find that during the four to six hour period, oftentimes is when patients get re-intubated. And I, I advocate for extremely aggressive hemodynamic management during that time. And also ensuring, because these patients can deteriorate in about that time, ensuring that whichever providers are managing the patient are aware that this deterioration may occur and plan for the management. Sometimes that planning includes reinstituting positive pressure or invasive positive pressure ventilation immediately when uh, failure does occur. Thank you for that, Dr. Burnett. And wow, what an amazing pearl pack discussion this has been. I, for one, am going to definitely enjoy this episode multiple times to absorb all of these concepts and pearls. Major thanks to Eunice and Karen for leadership over this entire series as series co-chairs. And, you know, this was just a very special episode both as a masterclass in the fundamental cardiorespiratory interactions we all need to be aware of in the showman ward, but also in the relationships of our tremendous guests. Dr. Lee, you've been a mentor to both Dr. Barnett and Sam. And Sam, you've learned from both our experts today, Dr. Lee, when you were a NIH critical care medicine fellow, and Dr. Barnett now is a UCSF cardiology fellow. <laughs> you know, Sam, I'm thinking back to our white coat ceremony at the beginning of intern year. I remember it as if it was just yesterday. And, and I remember so clearly that your dad was there and how proud he clearly was of you. And I also remember your bright colored socks, which were so uniquely you. Since then, we've come a long way. And now you're at the tail end of your training and at the precipice of what I know is going to be a spectacular career ahead as a UCSF faculty and critical care cardiology specialist. Would you like to share what Dr. Lee's and Dr. Barnett's mentorship has meant to you and what you're excited about as you look ahead? Yeah, thanks for that, Ahmed. I do feel, you know, uniquely lucky to have trained with people like Burton and Chris. You know, I think I'll take a lot from my experiences with them as I move forward and, and start my young faculty career. You know, with Burton specifically, I think his patience and sort of commitment to medical education is something that I hope to replicate. And we're instituting, hopefully in the coming years, a dedicated critical care cardiology fellowship program and, you know, can also hope to advocate for the growth of this young field. And so I definitely appreciate what I've learned from Burton, but also just kind of the way he approaches medical education in general. And then, you know, Chris, you know, actually taught me as a critical care fellow as well, because we did our time in the CICU was actually at MedStar where he was working and he enjoyed our time together so much that he followed me out to UCSF. And now I get to learn from him more. But, you know, Chris has been a, a, just a trailblazer in, in this field and the way he's crafted a career in this space that didn't really exist 10 or 15 years ago has been instrumental to, you know, my commitment to this field. And also I'm now lucky enough to continue to have his career mentorship moving forward as we continue to sort of advocate for what it is that a critical care cardiologist does and how we are unique. So I really do feel lucky and I'm pleased to be able to do this podcast with the both of them. And Dr. Barnett, I know you had a couple of things you wanted to say about Dr. Lee as well. Yeah, no, I agree. It's remarkable. I've known Dr. Lee for a long time. He was my attending when I was a fellow at the NIH many years ago when Dr. Lee was at MedStar. And it's universally agreed among my class and many other classes of NIH fellows that Dr. Lee is, is an exceptional educator. And Dr. Lee had an educational program that is one of my most treasured possessions, still on paper, a stacks of articles and teaching guides that was one of my most treasured possessions for a very long time. It's really a remarkable experience to get to 
be on a panel with Dr. Lee. And regarding Sam, we're exceptionally excited to have Sam join us at UCSF. And yes, Sam was my inspiration for traveling to San Francisco. It really has been an honor for me, certainly, to participate in this panel. And it's especially great to reconnect with Sam Bresca and Chris Barnett. And, you know, as they've said, I had the pleasure of teaching both of them, which makes me very old, I think. But I can't think of too many greater joys in life than to be able to train people and to work with them and then begin to respect them and to start to follow in their footsteps in many ways of what they have done. And I really envy, actually, what you and Sam are going to have in UCSF. I think this burgeoning field of critical care cardiology is Exciting. I wish I could be a part if I could start over. So I really envy what you have and I wish you much success in your new ventures there. And I'm really delighted that I could play a small part in your career. So thank you so much. Well, Burden, I'll jump in there and say that we're anticipating a critical care cardiology fellowship program at UCSF that will begin hopefully in the next couple of years. So I will aggressively recruit you as our first critical care cardiology fellow. <laughs> and you can join us. <laughs> thank you. I will definitely consider that. Thank you, everyone, for joining us today. And Dr. Lee, as to your comment, I think we can all agree that you are forever a cardio nerd and very much a part of the field of critical care cardiology in our eyes. We had an excellent panel today. We have covered so many key topics and provided a wealth of information. I feel so lucky to be a part of this episode. And I also want to say that this was a special episode because I got to witness the collegiality and friendship that has gone between Dr. Slee, Barnett, and Dr. Bruska. And it's really inspiring to me to be able to witness that. And it was a great kind of added top off to this excellent discussion. Thank Thank you everyone for joining and have a good day. Beep. Beep.